0: attention to as we conclude this, this book here is that in the heat of the fight we can't lose sight in the heat of the fight you, we can't lose sight if you just bear with me with a little illustration at least opening illustration here there are some on the battlefield of the Christian life um, who are out there just swinging in the air as Paul said that you know I I don't want to I don't want to beat the air but sometimes it seems like there are believers that are out on the battlefield and they're just you know they're just making racket that's all they're doing they're not advancing um they're just making racket and and swinging the sword there are some who make a few little jabs here or there and then cower back behind the walls and then sneak out every once in a while and you know make a jab and Maybe do a little something and then kind of retreat back and find some rest. There are some who, read, who run headlong with all kinds of zeal and, and, and um, energy. And they run headlong in, into the fight and then they get clobbered. Because they're not prepared. They didn't realize how hard it was going to be. A little over, overzealous but not a whole lot of knowledge and preparation. There are others who stay in the planning room. Never go onto the battlefield, but talk about all the spiritual battle and the plans and the equipment and 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 the strategies and but they but they never see the fight. They just always in the work room. They're they're always talking about it and studying it and thinking about it and using terms but but they they don't ever they don't ever get out into the fight. There are some who are still in training camp boot camp who who are learning their own level they They still got a you know a wooden sword all right? they're they're still working with rubber bullets and 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 they're still in the weight room learning learning to lift. I kind of see this as as our children in Sunday school and some of our young people and uh and and maybe Um, maybe some very new converts who are still in the training room learning how to swing and breathe and wear this armor. There's a place for that. Still others are methodically advancing step by step. They get hit. They get tired. They get weak sometimes. And then they find their strength and they move forward. Then they make some more advances. Again, they get, they get struggled, they, they get hit, they, they make, a, make a stumble and they make a fall, but they get back up and the next time they're stronger and they take a few more steps forward. And they're just, they're just methodically plodding down the field and they're advancing. And then there are others who are in the hospital ward. They're, they're in the tent in the back and they've been wounded severely. They've been injured. There are some in this hospital ward who are recovering from just merely scratches. You know, their pride has been hit. Um, they're afraid. So they begin to waver and doubt on the battlefield. And so they've got, they've got some fears and struggles. And, and so they're in, they're in the hospital for different reasons. And they just don't want to return to the fight anymore. They'd rather just give up. Now, with that picture in mind, all that I described for you could be um, could be at some level in your life, you may have been in several of those different stages. Uh, maybe you've had your time in the hospital room, where you've been injured, and you needed some intense counseling and help, and just needed to sit back and heal. Maybe, maybe you, you've been at times methodically planning and growing and getting hit and then growing and getting better. Maybe you've run the other way. Maybe you're the one that's just jabbing every once in a while and you hit something good, but then you run back and take a vacation spiritually. Or you could be like the person who is out there who's just swinging and making a lot of racket but not hitting anything. Just, you know, just reaching the gun over the top and just shooting, you know, up in the air but not really hitting anything or doing anything for the Lord, just kind of going in circles. Um, there, there are a lot of different, different types of believers and levels in this spiritual fight. When I ask you this evening, where are you at currently right now? In your spiritual battle, in your spiritual walk with the Lord, in your journey, in your marathon, on your battlefield, where do you put yourself? Where would you be? recognize that there is a place for each one except maybe the one who's you know just meandering and and not doing anything that needs to just wake up there's there's different points that maybe we shouldn't be in and we should advance however it is a daily struggle all of those people that I described for you are believers in some place now there are the they's The they's, the them's, and the those. Now, I I say it that way because that's what Jude uses. They's, them's, and thosees. However the English comes out. They're in here. We just read a bunch of them. This type of group of people are the ones who've snuck in from the back room. They came through boot camp. They grabbed a sword along the way. And they came out into the fight, but they're pretending. They're not real soldiers. In fact, they're working for the other side. They're on the side of the enemy, but all intents and purposes, they're wearing the outfit, they have some of the armor, and they went through some of the process in the same classes, in the same Sunday schools, and the same Bible training, and the same Awana, and the same type of things. But they're in the fight. But they're pretenders. And their goal is to infiltrate and discourage and draw away and find the weak and vulnerable on the field. The one who's just shooting around and swinging with nothing. The one who's just every once in a while jabbing. Or the one who just stumbles and is on his knees getting ready to get back up. Or maybe he meanders over into the hospital tent. In the quarters, and he begins to feel around and, and and plant some seeds in of doubt in the ears of those. These are outsiders. They are fools who have crept in with intent and a purpose, like a hidden reef creeping around the battlefield, picking off the weak and vulnerable soldiers. So get this thirty thousand feet um, picture of the book of Jude. He starts out by saying this greeting to to the church about those who are called, those who are sanctified, those who are loved, those who are kept. And then he says, I wanted to write to you about this common salvation that we so much enjoy. But then when I started to write, the Holy Spirit told me not to, and I can no longer write like I wanted to. Instead, I'm writing to you about contending for the faith. I'm writing to you about those who are on the battlefield and watch out for those who are who have crept into the fight. Get out there and fight. Don't be vulnerable. Know your enemy. Know who your enemy are. Be able to spot the fake ones and the phony ones. It's been recorded in your history book. Go back and read it. Go back to Enoch. Go back to Moses. Go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Go back to the passage where, where um, Michael and and, uh, and, and the devil are fighting over the, uh, the body of, uh, of Moses. Go back to Korah. Go back to Cain. Go back to, uh, to, to Balaam. It's, it's all written in your history book. You heard, you heard about it and you studied it in Sunday school. I'm not telling you anything new. That's what Jude is saying. Jude has this giant section and he says, just remember, it's written for you. Go back to Sunday school and read through your own Bible and be able to see and pick out these Who are vulnerable are these who are who are trying to attack the vulnerable and now that you've gone back to Sunday school and you remember what has been previously told to you you need to advance in the fight until Jesus comes keep going don't give up get out there and storm the gates of hell how are we going to do that. He he closes with these these verbs and these participles by which we should do that. Building ourselves, keeping ourselves in the love. We've talked all about that. And then he concludes the last two verses with a benediction and a doxology. And there you have the book of Jude, all 25 verses in a nutshell. You say, well, pastor, why didn't you do that about 20 sermons ago for us? And move to the next series. Well, because this, this on Wednesday night is not a quick Bible survey class. Okay? This, is, this is not New Testament and Old Testament survey. That's not where we are. You can get some classes like that. We can situate a Sunday school class in the fashion. However, what we do on Wednesday night Bible study is we unpack the Bible and we study the Bible. We grab the milk where there is milk for those who are here that need milk. But then we dig into the fruits and vegetables and the meat and the steak as well. That we may grow thereby, the apostles say. So that's what we do. So we took 20, I counted maybe 20, 23 sermons to work through these 25 verses. And we walked through them and unpacked them. And hopefully it was a good journey for you and a study for you to see what Jude is doing. Now, as we look at the conclusion of this book, the closing Epistle," and I'll walk through this uh, to some extent as fast as I can, David did some research. he passed on some notes to me. He had studied these last two verses, and uh, a lot of what he had is exactly what um, I unpacked uh, this afternoon and yesterday afternoon as well, but even in some of just his uh, some of his notes that he had had when he went through all of the epistles in the new testament and saw their conclusions how did they end here are just some some concluding things as i read through the list at the end of all of those epistles grace peace and love are the most common conclusions in all of the pauline epistles peter writes as well as the author of Hebrews, and john concludes at the end of his books grace peace or love in some way at the conclusion of their writings as well Paul would often seek to greet someone in his closing. Several of his books he would ask, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. So not only would he add grace, peace, and love in some kind of fashion or mercy, but he would also ask to greet. John, in two of his epistles, he's only got three of those epistles, in two of them, he, he greets, my little children, keep yourselves from idols and then he wants to greet in the second epistle the elect sister then he says greet my friends all right so so John is also a greeter however there are several books that have doxologies at the end of them and for the sake of time I won't read them but you can write them down and you can read them later they are rich and 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 very worth uh, reading even compared to Jude's as well Romans 16:24 and 27 Paul gives a wonderful doxology at the end of the book of Romans Philippians 4 and verse 20 concludes with a doxology, Second Peter in verse three, in verse uh, chapter three, in verse eighteen, also has a doxology and a benediction at the end, and then one of the most famous to conclude. And this is probably where most people would know outside of the phrase of contending for the faith in verse three. If you had to go through a verse that you memorized or that you know by heart before you ever came to Jude twenty. 20 weeks ago or so, you would have been able to at least quote a portion of the last two verses of the book of Jude by heart. However, there are several other books in the New Testament that includes doxologies as well. They may not come at the end, but they're spread out throughout the middle. Jude, for such a small book, puts a wonderful, powerful punch at the end of praise to the Lord. He draws his readers to the awesomeness of the God that we are serving. It takes the focus off of this wicked world and our sinful state and our wretchedness of the here and now and gets our eyes on the one who is and was and is to come. Focus our attention. And let me uh, uh, give you a little bit of context of where we draw ourselves. This book is a wonderful, concise, yet deep well of truth. What started out as a letter to encourage the believers in salvation then that they richly enjoyed turned into a Holy Spirit led warning for false teachers. Then Jude draws his readers starting in verse 17 to a rallying cry to fight. Remember they are not to forget. Then he gives an offensive strategy for standing and fighting. Stay in the love of God continue to reach to those around you hate the garment spotted by the flesh have a fear a healthy fear of sin while you're reaching and pulling people out of the pits of hell. be careful that you don't get influenced and you compromise God hates sin and we should hate it as well now this is the climax of the epistle Instead of like John, he just closes and says, keep yourselves from idols. And then the little book of 1 John closes. Jude says, I want to leave you with with something that will encourage your heart. In the midst of the fight. That in the heat of the battle, you don't lose sight. So, in verse 23... 24 and 25 he unpacks and he says now unto him and verse 25 to the only wise God. So let's let's look at this just uh, quickly in the time we have here "To, to the one who is able to do to him. That's verse 24 to him. This is the center focus of the whole book. The whole reason Jude is writing is because of him because of God. When all is said and done, when time runs out, when you breathe your last breath, when everything in this life's journey and the battlefield is over and the bombs and the guns and and all that other stuff that is is situated in your battle and in your fight, when it's all finished and said and done, the last one who is going to be standing, whatever is matter, is going to be to him and for him. That's the focus. It's all about him. In other words, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off of the, of, of the current struggle that you're fighting. Stop feeling depressed about your problems. And feast your eyes on these two verses to him. And then what is it that he can do for us? It says here, now unto him that is able... And then he will give you two things that he's able to do. He's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. First of all, let's look at the word able. Can I read you a few verses of where this word finds itself about what God is able to do? Romans 14 and verse 4. He is able to make you stand. Romans 16 and verse 25. He is able to establish you. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 He is able to make all grace abound to your account. Ephesians 3:20 He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or think. He is able. Acts 20 and verse 32 He is able to build you up. Philippians 3 and verse 21 He is able to subdue all things under his feet. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save you to the uttermost. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And then Jude says as he concludes his book, unto him that is able. There are two things as we see this word able. It is probably in our English, it's a little bit downplayed. The Greek word means dynamite, dynamos, okay? This is, this is a powerful word. Literally, it is a great dynamic power and ability. In all your weakness and all your fighting and all the fear of sin and all the hatred of the garments, even getting us dirty, in all our serving of God, we must remember it is not us. We are not the ones who are able, but he is the one who is able not about my ability it's not about your ability it's not about anyone else's ability of power even michael the archangel doesn't have his own ability to fight the devil this whole book will turn and focus and say if anyone does anything it is because he is able he is able to keep you from falling As you see this verse here, he says to keep you from falling. Some translations would use the word stumbling or to slip. He he is going to keep you from slipping. He's going to keep his eye on you and to watch you and to see you through this. Don't miss the, the personal pronoun you. He is able to keep you. Not them, not they, not those. We talked about that already. They know their destruction, or at least they should by this point. You should know their destruction. But when it comes to you, those who are sanctified, loved, and kept, God will keep you from falling. In other words, He will never lose sight of you. He has you plastered on His, if, can I say this in a reverent way, on His refrigerator. And every morning, and every night, and all through the day, and all through the night, he looks at you, he sees you, and he keeps you. You're always on his mind, even when he is not on yours. Even when you can't see him, he can see you. You are his Those who are his are always in his sight, and the scripture even goes further and says that they are in his hand. He will keep you from falling. This means in the journey with the Lord, you with his ability are going to cross the finish line without falling away and without losing. The word here is only used in the New Testament in this place. uh, uh, However, in the classical Greek, it is used of a horse that has good, sure footing that doesn't slip. And so in this passage, Jude is not using this term to mean sinlessness or perfection. He is not saying God will keep you from sinning. So believers don't sin. It's not what he's saying. He's saying God will keep you from falling. God does not promise that believers will never sin or never stumble in the sense that they make mistakes. He does not promise to keep us from, he he does promise, however, to keep us from falling into apostasy and damnation. This means he will keep you from falling abandoning the faith. Listen to what Psalm 121 and verse 3 says. And you actually could probably in your margin write this verse because it could be that Jude had this verse in mind when he wrote this. He will not let your foot be moved. That means to slip. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. I'm watching a documentary on mountain climbing. You know, guys who go up there and this guy who, you know, the dome in Yosemite National Park, you know that beautiful structure. And these guys who freeze so low and climb climb up that, that thing. I, I don't know why in the world, um, you know, somebody like me who's afraid of heights will watch a whole documentary about people climbing thousands and thousands of feet in the air without ropes. Or with ropes. My hands, my palms sweat, my heart rate goes up. I start sweating on that on the there. But I'm so intrigued. I'm conquering my fears as I sit on my couch. <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to attempt to do. And and some of those guys, I, I read um, I think it was Fox News the other day, that a veteran climber in one of the national parks, it may have been Yosemite National Park, was finally found. A thousand feet, he had fallen and was dead. You see, when you reach the top, if you are a believer, mark this down, you will reach the top. And when you do, you will look back and say, God did that. God did that. I wasn't able. Every step of the way, when I thought I was just hanging on by a thread and that blunder here and that place over here. And yet, when when it happened and when it's all said and done, and that's Jude's point. You say, but pastor, we play devil's advocate. What about people that I know who were once faithful who have now fallen away from God? What about backsliding believers? Now, here's this. If they end up in their life as apostates... Denying the truth of God's word and denying Christ and walking away from it. Then, listen to John. John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. I mean, go through that passage again and see that from John. John answers that question. They may have looked like it. They may have claimed it. But if they apostatize and they go out and they, and they leave and, and go into that and, and their destiny it, and they end their life in that type of spirit, then they never were. But I believe in this verse that what it is talking about is that sometimes believers will stray. Sometimes believers will walk away. God will chase them down until he finally turns them over back to him. Now some could ask, you say, well, what about the sin unto death? Is there a sin unto death for the believer? Yes, get my message on John chapter 5 when we worked through that book a year or so ago. We talked about that sin unto death. But when we come to this passage of scripture, what is it that God is going to do? For those who are truly converted believers who have confessed Jesus Christ and are are children of God, when you get to the end, when you breathe your last breath or Jesus were to come back and you were to reach the goal and the top of your life, you were to look back, you, you say, God is able to keep me from falling. He is also able to make you stand. Look at the verse. Not only to keep you from falling, but to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now this is an interesting way of explaining something that is very important to us tonight. And hopefully on a Wednesday night this will be an encouragement to you. We are only four chapters away from being introduced to the throne room of God. If you know your books of the Bible, four chapters away from where we are, that brings us into Revelation chapter 4. And it is there in that throne room, God in all of his splendor and majesty at the end is announced in this beautiful scene of these creatures that are flying around the throne and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this beautiful rainbow, this wonderful scene of the majesty of God sitting on his throne. What a scene of glory. And Jude says this, you and I Are going to be standing there. We're going to be standing there. In that scene. In the end. When it's all said and done. Those who are sanctified. Loved and kept. And called by God. Those who are building their lives. And praying and keeping themselves in the spirit. And and walking down these things. And having compassion. Those who are his people he will keep you from falling that means you're gonna make it to the finish line and then he will plop you down in that beautiful scene and you're not gonna mess it up i just wonder what am i gonna knock over you know what what am i gonna scratch what are my kids gonna draw on in the heavenly kingdom you know you think about that you know as parents you know, what's gonna happen Jude says God is going to take a sinner like you and me, he's going to wash him up from his sinfulness, change his clothes, put white robes of righteousness on us, sustain us through this wicked world, and set us right in the middle of the throne room of God, and there we will shout for joy. If that doesn't motivate you to praise the Lord, then your praiser is broken. In other words, God will shine you up like a crown in a jewel, like a polished car. And he will set you before his throne when it's all said and done. And you and I will be crowns in his or jewels in his crown. And it is before his glory. And it won't be yours. It's not mine. It's not your mom's. It's not your dad's. It's not your church's. It will be All for his glory. No one will stand before God that day and get any credit for this masterpiece. Even the angels are going to sit back and say, look what God has done. I mean, you, you know how filthy you are. You know, like Joshua, In Zechariah chapter 3, in those filthy garments, what it was for God to save you and rescue you and then to keep you after he's loved you and given you a savior, and then you still fall, you still have those thoughts, you still struggle, you still fall away at times or stumble at times. You still have that dirty thought. And yet we have an advocate who is walking all the way with us till the end, and then he will take us, and Paul sees this scene, I believe, as well, in Ephesians chapter 5, and there he will present you to God faultless, like a bride. That's what Jude says here. He said, when he, he will present you faultless, that means blameless before the presence of God. This means all the cracks and all the scars of sin that you currently have right now are going to be removed. William Barclay says this, It is characteristic of the sacrifices. This word, faultless, is characteristic of the sacrifices for animals. Being without blemish. Making them fit for God's purpose. And now, in this scene... Jude is telling believers who are suffering, bleeding, they're on the battlefield, they're swinging, they're fighting. They've got got apostates in their church, they're ministering, they're just trying to stay alive. They're losing their homes, they're losing their houses, they're being fed to the lions. And Jude says, listen, keep your head looking up. Because in the end, Jesus will bring you and plant you before the throne of God. And there you will be spotless fit for the master's use. Do you know events and people who have stood before the presence of God in the scripture? Do you remember Daniel when he saw the glory of God? and he fell down. Do you remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? He fell down before the Lord and he was unworthy. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember what happened with them? They trembled and fell to the ground. Solomon, when the glory of God came into the temple and the presence of God was there in the king, he fell down with his hands and feet prostrate on the ground. Moses was struck with the light on Mount Sinai. John the Revelator, when he finally comes comes into the presence of God on several different occasions, falls down and is utterly speechless. This is what God will do. And it is with joy that we will be there. This word joy or exceeding joy in this verse is, is the same word that is used for a great banquet feast. Green says it is a word that only belongs in heaven. Every believer is looking forward to that day. And when we get there, we won't stand in fear. When we get there, we won't stand in dread. We won't stand in terror of his wrath. We won't be ashamed and we won't be guilty. We will stand there with joy. I'm a child of the king. I've been washed, I've been called, I've been sanctified, I've been made righteous, I've been transformed. And at that moment, you will be perfect in all of Jesus' splendor. And I believe it is John who says, and we will be like him. It's not for those, it's not for them, it's not for they. Their names aren't found in the Lamb's book of life. And when the end comes for them they will experience an eternal separation from God in a place called hell that is very real. Let me close with this very quickly. In verse 25, let's read it. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He is the only. One translation says this, to God alone. This means he is unique. There is no other. Wise. This is the only one who is wise. He's a wonderful counselor, Isaiah said. There is no wisdom outside of himself. Don't even look for it. He is our Savior. He is this God who is our Savior. Now, notice something here. Savior is normally tied to Jesus. And it is coming after Jesus' name comes after this word. However, in this verse, the word Savior is connected with the name before it. The only wise God, our Savior. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. However, Jesus is the only wise God. And Jude masterfully connects the Father who is God, the Son who is God, and the Holy Spirit who is God, who is the only wise God. In other words, Jude is saying, there is only one God. And yet there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So the next time a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon talks to you about Jesus being lesser than God, turn to this passage of Scripture. This verse supports that there is only one God. And God the Father and God the Son are seen as equal. Three persons, one God. And then these four words are tied to the only wise God. These four words are tied to both the Son and the Father. And the words are to be situated. All of this goes to Him. Glory, majesty, dominion, and power. Glory is doxa. This is splendor. This is weight. It's like light coming out of the sun. This is before his glory that we will stand in his throne. And it will be for his glory that all things will end. The end of all things is the glory of God. Majesty, this is an interesting word. This word is connected to the nature of a king. It is talking about his sovereignty. It's used in Hebrews 1 and verse 3 and 13 and verse 1. Only other times in the New Testament. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the power of his Son, or by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the level that no other king or leader or dictator can ever achieve. Ask Nebuchadnezzar about majesty. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. The next word is dominion. This word means control over. It speaks of his mighty hand over the powers of this world. We think of Adam who was given dominion over the creation and over the animal kingdom. And then he lost control of it because of sin. Now God is the one who has dominion. As the only king of kings and lord of lords, he can with his hand subdue all things under his feet. And don't you ever forget it. Don't lose sight of who's in charge. Not only glory, majesty, dominion, but power. This is power of authority. This is a different word than the word used before dynamize, which is the word ability. This word here speaks of his omnipotence, that everything will match his perfect will. He spoke by the word of his power into existence all thing. Then sin came and God allowed sin and man to make a giant mess of things. Talk about train wrecks. This world was in a terrible, but it still is today in a terrible mess. And it is under the power of God that he will take that terrible mess... And it won't be through FEMA or through some some other company or group that will come in and just bring relief. It will be God who will come and he will burn this world with fire and he will make a new one for his glory. Now the last phrase, before all time, now and ever, amen. And here's what Jude is saying with this phrase when he says before all time. These four doxological praises attributed to God have always been his. He never lost them. They go all the way back before the world ever began and they will continue forward into the eternal state. They always have been his and they always will be his. He never lost the glory. He never lost control. He never lost the dominion. He never lost his power. He never lost his majesty. He's been in the same place he's always been, and he is in the same place today as he was when he spoke into existence of this world, and he's in the same place today as when you would read in Revelation chapter 4. He is on his throne with all four of these in perfectly control. He's not lost a bit of it. Now, from our standpoint, it seems like things are a pretty big mess. But God's got a plan and God's got a will and everything is matching up just like he said. And in the end, those who are his will stand and the apostle uh, Jude says to the readers, rest in that. Jude says when you get your eyes on 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 your suffering, When you're weary and worn as a soldier, when you're wavering and weak as a Christian, when you're a mom who's struggling to raise your children with sinful natures, when you're a dad and a husband who's fighting to just be faithful, when you're a servant of the Lord who's trying to just stay true in a wicked world, rest on this about your God. Jude says in the conclusion of this book, he alone, has all the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the power. He's always had it and he always will have it. And all God's people said, Father, I pray as we close tonight. What a wonderful scene in a very heavy and at times depressing book. A very sober reminder that there are weak Christians all around us who are falling prey to this wicked world. There are churches who are closing the doors and compromising the truth of God's word, forgetting the fight and, and just um, for the sake of compromise, drawing a crowd. And those who are faithful and those who are continuing to stand true with the word of God and your holiness and showing a distinction and a separation as we become more narrow and in, 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 in less of a majority and a smaller minority every day as this wicked world continues to advance, would we not forget that we have a job to do until you return? And in the midst of the fight, wherever we find ourselves on the battlefield, whether it, it's, it's recovering or, or stumbling or, or working through, would we rest assured when the end comes and we breathe our last breath or you were, to, you were to take us home to be with you, in the end you are able to keep us from falling. You are able to present us before the throne of God, faultless and blameless. And it is to you who is the only wise God and savior that receives all the glory, all the majesty, all the 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 authority and power and dominion. And we with Jude cry out, amen and amen. Would you bless us as we go? Would we continue to read these verses when we get heavy and when the sword gets tough and the, the spiritual battle gets tough and the suffering is, is painful and the nights are long? Would we keep our eyes in the heat of the battle? Would we keep our eyes on our, our sight to the final conclusion that you are, are, are the winner and you are seated on your throne and we will be there one day? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.